Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very quiet city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Andrew Copson. Andrew is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK. That is a national charity committed to putting humanism into practice and building a tolerant world where rational thinking and kindness prevail. Andrew, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you. Great to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Now, Andrew, the purpose of this podcast is essentially to get your take on leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you personally? Well, the majority of my leadership experience has been in the humanist movement, either in the UK or internationally. And that is a very distinctive, I think, kind of leadership because um, the humanist movement is a, a moral movement. You know, it's had a institutional existence in the UK for the last 125 years, um, but around the world um, for much longer or in some countries much shorter periods. Um, and being a moral movement composed of people who have their very individual and um, closely felt ideas about ethics and their values um, means that you can't lead by you know, telling people what to do or what to think. Um, by definition, um, you've been put in a position uh, almost of, of leadership amongst equals. So I think you have to uh, model um, the sort of values that you want to live. You have to try and embody the sense of purpose that the people that you have chosen you to lead them um, uh, expect. Um, to achieve and do that while being sort of consistent with the values that they all share. So um, I don't know if that's typical of leadership everywhere, but it's certainly my experience of leadership of, of what you might term a moral movement. Mm. And do you certainly try to uh, carry those qualities into your own leadership model as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, people talk a lot now about sort of purpose-driven business or purpose-driven leadership. And I suppose that we're lucky in humanist organizations to always have been driven by purpose um, with a clear set of values behind us, you know, the dignity of other people, solving uh, problems and disagreements through debate and dialogue um, in a reasoned way, um, observing always you know, democratic uh, norms and, and, and the rule of law um, in all of our dealings. So uh, that is something that is not, uh, it's lucky that it's not just principles, it's something that you can embody in your leadership. And I think that's what you have to try to do. Mm. And principles do come into place as well, as you say there, when dealing with conflict, because we have to recognise that as human beings, we do have limitations and we are ultimately fallible. So bringing those principles into dealing with conflict as a leader is also quite important, especially in the humanist world, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's, there's certainly, I mean, there is no hierarchy uh, in um, the average humanist organization. There is um, trust and respect, I think, for people who've got authority, um, which has put them, you know, which they've been put into leadership positions to exercise. But that authority is always provisional. It's always open to question. Um, it's never infallible. Um, nothing is infallible, you know, from a humanist point of view. There's um, there's no such thing as a, a, a perfect action or a perfect world or a perfect argument. So you've always got to be questioning everything. I mean, humanist thinks that that's true of, of everything in life. You know, question, find out, be curious, try and look at it from another frame, try and look at it from another um, perspective. But certainly that's also true of leadership. And I think that's really healthy because it encourages 
in yourself if you're open-minded and responsive to criticism and the sort of self-reflection that leads to personal development as well as you know being a model that's good for your whole organization and do you think some people maybe are guilty of being in leadership positions and shying away from criticism and perhaps being afraid to try new things and being afraid to fail whereas we should be telling them to embrace their failings embrace criticism and use that to learn and develop oh yeah i think that's right I mean, you know, from my point of view, this is the one life we have. You know, there's never, you're never going to become a perfect person after death. I don't believe that. So this is your chance. You know, this is the, you're only ever going to reach your ceiling in this life. And I think that it's absolutely necessary for personal development to become as um, much as we can whole, more rounded people um, that we are, you know, open to external stimuluses. Um, in in helping us to grow and so yeah criticism is absolutely what we need and that doesn't mean you've got to be an absolute slave to criticism you've got to exercise your own personal judgment in assessing um, the legitimacy of the criticism um, that you're facing if you're facing it but I do think that some people react of course too defensively to criticism I I, I, I do too we all do you know there's, there's an instinct there to defend yourself and protect yourself um, especially if you feel very strongly um, uh, wedded to the decision that you made or the view that you've put forward um, and you can't always immediately be open to criticism sometimes you have to think about it for a while and then you realise um, that you know you should be open to this and you should think about it and that's something you can't do on your own I think it's really important to have people around you with whom you've developed a culture of um, openness to criticism and then when you do that, you're, you know, people can say to you, look, do you mind if I just say, you know, can you, you know, are you in the mood where you can receive some good um, feedback, uh, critical feedback on, on this thing that you've done or you've said? And you, you know, trust them to be able to say, yes, please do. And then you're in the right frame of mind to receive that sort of criticism and then improve. But, you know, definitely leadership and, and learning to grow as a leader is, is an iterative process and should be. And it certainly is a self-reflective one. It comes back to humility, doesn't it, as a leader? I think um, a leader has to be able oh, yeah. to recognise their own limitations, don't they? And understand that they're not always going to have all of the answers, even though they feel under pressure to provide them all of the time. Absolutely. I mean, I think that you know, the one of the most important things that I've ever said to, to anyone, I think, um, for example, when my board um, is asking me a question or you know, a member is asking me a question or some of the team is asking me a question is, is I'll find out. You know, <laughs> you've got to admit um, when you don't know uh, something um, or you're not sure. Um, sometimes you, you can then start to discuss it to come to a, a conclusion together with someone. But sometimes you just don't know. You need to go and ask someone else. It's not your, um, you know, professional strength or it's not your area of expertise or it's not your area of knowledge. And I think it's it's foolish to pretend that you can know everything or do everything, especially in in an area where. Um, well, every area of life is like this, but if I think about my immediate job, you know, I've got people, um, working with people who, um, are responsible for leading funerals, people who are responsible for leading pastoral care in prisons, people who are responsible for advocating for government, people who are responsible for producing resources to schools. I don't have the individual professional knowledge, um, that they all have in their area. And it, um, it would be a foolish leader or manager, in fact, who thought that they should have all that knowledge. Um, so to, 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 to trust in turn um, the professional knowledge and judgment of others, I think is absolutely important part of leadership. You can't know everything. You never will. 
It's absolutely yeah, integral, isn't it? Um, surrounding yourself as a leader with people who are going to get the best out of you and offer you um, knowledge and advice that you don't have, but also vice versa, people who you can nurture the best out of as well and really give them some independence to essentially take on leadership of their own as well. I think that's very important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think that, you know, anyone who wants to be a leader leading the same people forever with them also in their role of, um, uh, you know, following your leadership, um, I think is getting the wrong end of the stick because what what you want to do is to um, nurture everyone's talents and everyone's aspirations and, you know, assist in their own development. You know, personal development is not a zero-sum game. Everyone develops together and can grow together. Um, and when you're, you've been working with people who in their turn can lead enterprises of their own, I think that's very fulfilling. Mm, I would certainly um, agree with that. And um, if you were to uh, give um, Andrew some advice to the next generation of emerging leaders, what sort of advice would you give them based upon your own experiences? Ooh, that's a, a difficult question to be asked. That's not the sort of mode I usually find myself in advice giving. Um, I think... I would encourage everyone to remain open-minded. And by open-minded, I don't just, I don't mean don't make your mind up about things. Don't keep every um, answer provision, completely provisional and, and equivocating your mind all the time, but remain open all the time to new ways of looking at problems, new ways of thinking, um, different possibilities, different frames through which to see um, even the, the same problem. And be aware that, different people that you have around you are an incredible resource in offering you those different perspectives, some of which you can integrate into your own uh, way of looking at things, but some you never will be able to, so you have to rely on their other perspectives. Remain open in that way. Um, and I think if you if you do, um, then you can become, you can respond to situations in a much more adaptable and flexible and nuanced way, and you'll lead other people to do that better too. To be quite honest, Andrew, I think that's a very sound advice and anybody embarking on their first day in a leadership role would really do well to uh, to heed that. Um, if we think about the uh, the future for a moment before, of course, we uh, do wrap things up on uh, today's programme, uh, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Humanists UK and what you do hope to achieve in that time as an organisation, particularly in light of COVID-19, the ensuing disruption of that at the moment, and then navigating that pandemic and then coming out of the other side of that. Well, it's such a strange time, isn't it? I mean, you know, my answer to the question of what the next 12 months would hold um, a few weeks ago would have been very different before this very changed situation for us and for us as an organization and for the sector, the voluntary sector, and for our country and the world is is, is so transformed. Um, At the moment, to be completely honest, like many organizations, um, we're... Uh, holding on to our existence. We're a voluntary organization. We depend entirely on subscriptions and donations. Um, like many other charities, as, as industry bodies like NCVO and the CAVO have, have said, um, we suffered a big dip in incomes as, as the virus took hold. Um, our donors, just like everyone else, were affected in their jobs and their livelihoods, in their own financial circumstances. Um, we've had to put staff on, on, on furlough leave, the, the scheme the government's made available. Um, so as I uh, look forward, um, what I hope to do is to be able to hold all that together. And that brings, you know, completely new challenges in terms of leadership to try and um, lead a, a dispersed team, half of whom are on solid leave, half of whom are not, hold them together with a common vision um, for the future. Um, so definitely survival is top of the list, um, survival for a purpose. Um, but beyond that, of course, then 
um, there is uh, getting getting the show back on the road in, in whatever the new normal turns out to be. I think it's foolish to say one could predict exactly what the context will be a year from now. We don't know what all this will be. Um, so I think that at a time like this, it's important just to hold on to principles. And for Humanist UK, that, that, that is very real. You know, we have principles of um, interdependence with other uh, human beings, principles of, of public reason, commitment to scientific evidence, very timely in a pandemic. So we play our part in, um, you know, combating sort of pseudoscience and conspiracy theories that we have, but also principles of service. And at the moment, our funeral celebrants and our pastoral carers um, who can't be furloughed because they're just so busy, a stretch beyond their capacity. So I think that um, our long-term uh, opportunity, if there is such an opportunity, if, if, if it's right to even think of opportunities in a time like this, will be to grow, um, by example, our community services, which um, have had such an impact um, on people during this virus epidemic, and um, to grow that section of work um, in the future um, as a result. So I think that, like everyone, what the pandemic is showing us is the things that are of ultimate and enduring value, and they're the areas of work that I think we'll perhaps reprioritise even when this is over. Absolutely. And I think that word um, endurance is absolutely key. Um, and it seems as well that there's so much ambition within the organisation through all of this. And what I think might be actually fantastic for the listeners in the next few months, Andrew, is um, once we start to get an idea of how things are panning out, if we get you back on the programme to look at this retrospectively and just see how the organisation has been doing and how things have indeed developed. But for now, I have to say it's been absolutely um, insightful and a real pleasure having you on today's programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today thank you i've really enjoyed it andrew thank you so much coming up next on okay, today's, I... uh, yes no no it's fine <laughs> No, that's fine. Coming up next, that's my um, fault. You don't have to edit that. No, no, it's fine. Um, coming up next on the uh, the program today, um, I'll be handing over to my colleague Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew, and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Trescothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... Um, 
you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that uh, I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive... um, Mm source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsex bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and and, and you've got (laughs) other places to be, so (laughs) we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the f- 
final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was to just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals 
um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, Okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be all right Mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of 
players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move it in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <coughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. 
And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh in a good way you know we felt so much uh love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so it what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a 
a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.